Hi, this is Neil Tu, the author of The Gospel Life. It's a joy to be able to spend some time with you all and to share with you a story and a message that means a great deal to me, one that I hope will bring you some light as well. In these remarks, I want to do three main things. First, I want to tell the story of how a book about a guy who lived in a monastery for three years came to be. Then I want to explain why it took 20 years for it to be published. And finally, I'd like to share with you the five main lessons I took away from my time among the monks. I think there are lessons here for all of us. So how did this story come to be? Well, I'd like to say that this story began with a puzzle I couldn't solve. My journey to the monastery has its roots in my college years. As a sophomore at Harvard, I went through an adult conversion. I had been raised Catholic, but my faith was not particularly developed, as is often the case for young Catholics today. In college, I was exposed to a vibrant campus ministry group called InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. To put it briefly, I had an experience of peer Bible studies, a summer retreat, and Christian mentoring, and these sparked a personal encounter with Jesus I had never known before. It was a conversion experience. That was the summer of my sophomore year. So the story begins there. But to undergo an adult conversion to Christianity while a student at Harvard is a tricky thing. It's an environment where your premises and your conclusions are bound to be challenged. This drove me to try to know what I really believed in, why I believed it, and whether it was credible. I had to find out whether I could make a convincing argument for my position. I was an English major at the time, and I was in the pre-med program. The first thing I did was add a minor in the comparative study of religion so I could take classes at Harvard Divinity School. But that path left me dissatisfied. Somehow I sensed that there was a difference between intellectual discourse about God and the kind of deep faith I had observed in a few people I knew. I wanted more than just knowledge about God from the head. I was drawn to the kind of faith that knew God from within, from the heart. I wanted to know how people came to know God from the heart, how some people developed that inner quality of faith. The most impactful part of my undergraduate studies was an honors English thesis I wrote on the great Anglican priest and poet George Herbert. Studying Herbert helped me begin to bridge the worlds of head and heart. Herbert lived in the early 1600s. He was an accomplished scholar from Cambridge who had a prominent position in government, but then went through an adult conversion, ultimately becoming a humble parish priest in a small town called Bemerton, England. He's a fascinating figure, an incredible mind and soul. His poems are like Shakespeare and the Psalms blended together. His poetry rings and groans with the sounds of a soul that thirsts for God, a soul that knew God, a soul that came to be known by God. My admiration of him has only grown over the years. Writing that thesis was a life raft for me during a period of my life when I deeply desired to know if faith was a foundation upon which I could build my life. Herbert's poetry and life made me think so, but how? I lacked his inner conviction. I lacked his inner religious experience. I lacked the knowledge of the heart that pulsed from his poems. That's what I wanted to find, this knowledge of the heart. Eventually, it occurred to me that monasticism might hold a key. I first discovered monasticism in a library at Harvard Divinity School through the writings of Thomas Merton when I was a senior. I remember finding my first book book on Merton and reading chunks of it while standing between bookshelves, captivated by what he wrote. 
Here was someone who wrote about God as though he knew him personally, as though the data of his religious experience was both internal and external and was personally verifiable. I wanted to know more. A seed was planted. The question was, how? I decided to take a year off between college and medical school to explore the basic question, does God exist? And if so, what should that mean for my life? I had framed this basic project in my mind and spirit when a miracle struck. Without applying for it, I received in my senior spring a major financial award, the Francis Burr Prize for the school's top graduating scholar-athlete. That money was a miracle because it enabled me to go study theology at a school in France that had been recommended to me. There I encountered the church fathers for the first time. If you've never read them, they are a treasure. These are the people in the, in the early centuries, the first three centuries of the, of the church, who were so f- foundational to its early understanding of Christ and the church. This is not the place to speak at length about that course, but I must mention I will never forget the fiery scholarly priest who taught me about St. Ignatius of Antioch and St. Polycarp, the holy bishop of Smyrna. These were two amazing early church fathers in the second century. I can still to this day see this little priest in my mind's eye. I can still hear his voice. When he spoke, the passion in his words was like fire. He taught like he saw and touched the things of which he spoke. I learned that Polycarp had been a disciple of the Apostle John. Think about that. A disciple of John in the later years of his life. I learned that John had consecrated Polycarp as bishop and that Polycarp went to his martyrdom around the age of 86 with that regal and otherworldly joy of the most ardent witnesses to the faith. He and Ignatius lived lives of radical Christian witness, and they wrote these amazing epistles epistles, that leap with the fire of the early church. This class was like a curtain lifting upon a dynamic Christian past I never knew. I was captivated. But I need to keep to the thread of my story. During Christmas vacation from my studies, I made my first retreat to the monastery where I would eventually spend so much time. To cut to the chase, there I met a modern-day equivalent of George Herbert, and even one might say Thomas Merton, a former physician, a man of strength and accomplishment, who could have done other things, but like Herbert and like Merton, he chose to follow Jesus in a simple life of love, community, and prayer. This man became my mentor and spiritual father. In the months that followed, the monastery loomed in my horizon like the early church. The monks were like the Desert Fathers, men whose witness was something different than anything I had seen before. I became fascinated by their lives. These lives lived in radical pursuit of an unseen God, whose footprints were nevertheless apparent. I decided to make the study of monastic life my graduate school, to learn what could animate so intense a commitment, and to put my learnings in a format that could be shared. That book would essentially become my second honors thesis a way to study the way of life of earnest Christians, and then I hoped to communicate it to the world. I would spend two years living and studying and photographing the way of life of monks in 11 monasteries. I exchanged my photos for room and board and raised money each summer in the States through exhibits and freelance work as a photographer. By the summer of 1997, the book was drafted. I had a literary agent and a publishing contract with Ignatius Press. Then one day in late July, during a phone conversation with the monk who had been my mentor, 
He shared with me something he had never told me before. Neil, he said, I think you have a vocation to the monastic life. I was stunned. Why did you never tell me this before? He replied, I respect your discernment, but something you said in your last letter gave me the impression that you felt I didn't think you have this vocation. That's not what I think. I think you do have a vocation to the monastic life. I felt you needed to know. That word was like a shaft of light dropped down from heaven. What could I do with it? I couldn't throw a bucket over it and cover it up. There was too much light. I couldn't run from it. I could never live with myself if I knew I might be called to this life, and I said no. Obviously, I did feel a strong pull to the monastic life. Why else had I spent two years studying it? I decided the only way I could ever know whether my interest in monasticism was actually a calling to monasticism was to stop writing about it and just do it. The monks had a pathway for people like me, people who thought they had a calling to the monastic way of life. Come, live as a monk for a year. During that time, you will be able to discern clearly whether you are called to this path or not. So I did. I canceled my book contract. I gave up my spot at Harvard Medical School, where I had deferred entrance earlier during, the, during my journey. I gave away my belongings and money and struck out for the closest thing I could find to the shores of Galilee, seeking the Jesus of the Gospels. I wanted to leave nothing behind that would pull me back. I wanted to be like Peter and Andrew and leave my nets and my boat if the master was calling. If I was to come back, I wanted to be sent back. I wanted to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that either I was called to be a monk or I was called to something else. So back to the monastery I went, one year in the novitiate. That's the uh, phrase that they use to talk about the period of time when young monks are learning the the way of of, uh, monastic life. To say now what happened during that year would be like digging beneath the ash-covered coals of a red-hot fire that had burned three hours earlier. Years and faded memories now cover those coals, but they still burn intensely with light and heat beneath. Somehow, some kind of covenant was sealed between my heart and God's heart in those days. A blueprint was drafted, a vision drawn up. Something unshakable began. I loved the life. It was so rich and so intense, but still I struggled all along with my calling to it. The one piece I could never reconcile was on what basis do I not respond to the sufferings of the world when I was aware of them? I never had deep peace about that. My grandmother was dying during that year, and I had a hard time reconciling not being able to be present during that process. There were other stories like this as well. In my observation of, the, of other monks, those who have this calling have some kind of otherworldly peace and conviction about it that enables them to reconcile these apparent contradictions, to see them in a higher light. I never did receive this higher light. <clears throat> One day, after a year, my mentor called me to see him. I entered and sat down, thinking nothing of it. He said to me, Neil, you've been here for a year now. You've done everything we asked you to do. But when a person enters monastic life, it can't be because someone else says they are called to this life. It has to be you who know you are called. You've been here long enough to know now. If you stay now, it has to be because you know you are called here. I leaned back in my chair. Without a moment's hesitation, I said, Oh, then I need to go. I've been here in obedience because Brother Patrick said I was called to this life. But if now you're telling me that it is I who must decide, 
then I must go. I don't feel the call. I had no idea what would come next. I had nothing to return to. But I remembered my conviction a year earlier. I won't come back unless I am sent. In a strange way, I did feel sent back, which isn't to say it was easy. It was, in fact, horribly difficult. I had to start over as a 27-year-old Harvard grad without a career path, job, sensible resume, or money in the bank. It was dreadful. And I had to adjust from Carthusian spirituality to that of Cincinnati parish life. This latter shift was the harder of the two transitions. But this is not the place to comment on either. My story here is the book. What happened to the book? And why did it take me from 1998 when I returned to the monastery to 2020 before I published it? Well, after I returned from the monastery, it took me almost three years before I was even ready to turn back to the book. The pain at not finding the depth that I had lived in the monastery was very difficult. As it turns out, at one time I had to die to my secular life in order to become a monk. Now I was discovering that I had to die to being a monk in order to return to secular life. That second death was harder. Still, with time I adjusted. One of the keys was meeting my then fiancé and discovering the face of human love. In Katie, I found someone with whom I could share the deep parts of my heart. She forever changed my story. A year later, in 2001, I was ready to return to the book. I mean, a year after I met Katie. In 2001, I was ready to return to the book, to close that chapter. I dusted off the manuscript, reconnected with my literary agent, renewed my previous publishing contract again, and was ready to publish it. I had kept Brother Patrick posted as to what I was doing. Then at the 11th hour, I got a six-page fax from him saying, in essence, don't do it. This is not the right thing for you. I'd love to find that fax now. I can't remember everything he said. It was a very hard letter to receive. It felt like one blow too many to take. I bowed my head, fired off a reply as to how difficult it was for me to hear this when the plan had always been to publish this book, when he had already signed the legal documents authorizing it. Ah oui, he said, this part I remember. La vie monastique, c'est un martyr. Ah yes, monastic life, it's a martyrdom. In other words, monastic life is a path you take to die to yourself. I could not understand. I, did, I couldn't agree, but I couldn't do other than assent. This was never supposed to be my project, though I often fought against that tendency. If my spiritual father didn't see it as being suited to me right now, if the cause of monasticism was not going to be aided by it, and if he was asking me not to publish it, then I didn't see how I could. So for a second time, the project died. I boxed up the photos and the text, set it on my bookshelf, and backed away. I would move four times over the next 19 years. Four times I had to box up that project, move it to another corner of my bookshelf, and then forget it again. Years passed. What I retained of my experience in the monastery were the truths of life that I believed in and which were validated in my personal experience, whether I ever spoke of them or not. This included a period of time when I cast it all aside as a loss like Jonah from the ship. During that time, I abandoned all my monastic practices as just too impractical, too ethereal, too ill-suited to life in the world. But that was a phase. In time, I came, as a pigeon does, small step by fragile step, to rebuild a spiritual life as husband, father, and laborer, a life that is informed by my experience in the monastery. That story is also for another day. The story for today picks up on March 10, 2020. 
19 years after Brother Patrick told me to shelve the book. I remember it well. It was a day after I received some very difficult news. An 11-year professional initiative of mine came to an end, and the COVID lockdown was set to kick in just a few days later. I got a call from the head of the monastic order in America, which was unusual in itself. Their leadership had changed. Brother Patrick was no longer head of the monastery. Now I was given a new word. This book is your project. If you feel it is something you want to publish it, then it is for you to decide. This book is your project. It is you who must decide. In a way, it was a parallel to the word given to me at the end of my stay in the monastery. It is you who must know. The funny thing is, at that time, I did not know. I scarcely blinked at this news. I didn't want to publish the book. I didn't want to fail again. Didn't want to be blocked again for some reason. Didn't want to try and fail to get a publisher. Didn't want to get to the finish line and have the monastery change their minds. Didn't want to give voice to a monastic tradition that few in the world would want to listen to. I was a little like Jonah, getting a word and then running in the opposite direction. So I did nothing for three and a half months until a miracle happened. June 24th, 2020, I was cooking dinner for the family. I forgot some ingredient, something simple but essential, and I had to run to the store to get it. Five minutes down the road from our house, I got in the car. I never listened to the radio in my car. It's one of those newer cars built for satellite stations, which I don't listen to. I only listen to my playlist from my phone. But on this night, the car was set to radio. I still don't know how. Catholic radio was on. I never listened to Catholic radio. I just don't like it. But immediately I recognized a voice. It was Father Joseph Fessio, the head of Ignatius Press. I knew his voice because he was the man who had agreed to have published my book both times. Ignatius Press was the publishing house I had the contract with in 97 and 2001. So when I heard Father Fessio's voice, my interest was piqued and I listened. They were talking about monasteries, how monasteries had played a critical role after the fall of the Roman Empire, preserving culture, preserving a sense of history, a sense of prayer, and a sense of study. Monasteries then were islands of sanity in a tempestuous time of cultural disorder. What are the chances, I said to myself, as I walked through the aisles of the grocery store and then returned to my car. On the chance that this wasn't chance, I pulled out my old monastery file later that night. The file was over 20 years old. The project back then was called by a different title. I found Father Fessio's email address written in pencil on his last letter to me. I emailed him. You won't remember me, Father Fessio, but in 2001, I was the guy whose manuscript on monasteries you approved. He wrote back that night, You're right, I don't remember you. I see thousands of manuscripts a year, but I'm interested. Send us your manuscript. Great, I sighed. I guess I have to do this. The next thing I discovered was that my task had gotten bigger because back in 2001, Ignatius Press used to accept outlines for manuscripts and a sample chapter. Now, if you wanted to submit a manuscript for publication, you had to submit a completed book. So I had work to do. But from that point, the snowball had some weight to it and it started to roll downhill. I searched through my old files. I called a tech expert to figure out how to access my written documents because the format they were saved in was now out of date. I remember thinking that was a mini miracle all by itself. As for the photographs, I had digitized the images in 2016 to preserve them. 
I did a search and figured out the best option where I could build a prototype of the book in an online book publisher service. I started by saying to myself, I'm just going to make a book for me and see what I think of it. By day four of that process, though, as I dove into the images, recraft which, these images which had sat on my bookshelf for 19 years, as I recrafted the copy, as I unearthed on Apple Music some chants from the monasteries where I lived, I was in a real sense transported back in time. Knees on the tile floor, ears wide open, eyes riveted on the altar, heart stilled. I was back there in the monastery, back in spirit. It was like time travel. I now saw that the work that began there, some 26 years earlier, I'm not talking about the work on the book, I'm talking about the work in my heart. I now saw that that work had never stopped. There was a plumb line of the heart that ran from Paris to Courrières en Chartreuse, France, to Monte Corona, Italy, to Boston, to Washington, D.C., and all the way back to Loveland, Ohio. It snapped taut, and I could see the straight line. The message of the monks was not locked back in time, in some dusty trunk of my past life. It was outside of time. It ran beneath time, like an underground river. I just hadn't dug deep enough to rediscover it until now. I have to do this, I said to myself by day four. I have to finish this. From that day until now, the flame of this work has not ceased to burn. I finished the prototype six weeks later, decided to go the route of self-publishing so I could control all the details, vastly improved the manuscript for version two three months later, then tested its public reception with the release of 100 books. Those sold out in two weeks. I took it through another round of deep editing and a high polish, giving it things like a cloth binding, thicker paper, and a removable cover flap. Then I had a soft launch, which was very warmly received, followed by a final round of edits until at last, here it is, ready for the light of day. People often ask me about those 19 years. How do I see them now? I see it as a grace to have waited. Much good, much learning, much maturing happened during all that waiting the fruitful mystery of the cross. I was given a blessed time when all that was happening was the quiet growth of deeper spiritual roots, as well as the roots of my vocation to marriage, fatherhood, and professional life. To live the gospel life in the world, not to talk about it. During those years, I learned to take hold of the wisdom of the monks for its own sake. That hold was purified and strengthened by the struggle and the passage of time. I think of the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis. And all 17 or so years he had to wait in servitude and then prison before the blessing that had been revealed to him came to fruition. Something happened in him during those years. Something changed. He was prepared for something. It was similar with me. I look at my 19 years now like the slow growth of a pearl, stirred and polished by the agitations of life. The wait was worth it. Now, as I look back on my time in the monastery, I ask myself the question, what did I learn from the monks in those three years? And what has been confirmed in the 23 years since, as I have struggled to integrate those lessons? There are five things I learned, which can be summed up in a single word. The first is, the first thing I learned from the monks is the mysterious fruitfulness of the desert, these barren places where we might think nothing happens. The desert is not a term we often use in contemporary Christianity, but in the scriptures, it is a central place of covenant and renewal. 
Consider that Moses led the people of Israel out of Egypt into the desert. He sealed the covenant between God and the people in the desert. God fed the Israelites with bread from heaven in the desert. Elijah, later during a period of persecution in the kingdom of Israel, fled to the desert, and there he heard the voice of God, not in the mighty wind, not in the earthquake, not in the fire, but in a gentle whisper and a silent voice most easily heard in the desert. The prophet Hosea says that God calls the soul to the desert where he will speak to her heart and seal a spousal covenant with her. And then there's this. It's rare to find a detail that is treated exactly the same by all four Gospels. But at the beginning of each of of every single one of the Gospels, we see the same fascinating reference. They each quote Isaiah chapter 40 to describe John the Baptist as a voice crying out in the desert to prepare the way of the Lord. John, whom Jesus calls the greatest prophet who ever lived, spent the majority of his life in the desert. It is said that he grew and was strengthened in spirit in the desert until the day of his manifestation in Israel. Then, of course, Jesus himself often withdrew alone to the desert to pray. That is where he loved to pray most, in the desert. So what is the desert? The desert is a place of solitude. It's a place where the energies and activities of the created order, our projects, our sports, our constructions, our city life, our technology, our passion, all these things fall silent. And here in the desert, the living dynamism of God's natural order stands forth. The desert is a place where the horizon is clear of buildings so the sun can come into view and fade into darkness following the natural order. The desert is not like the city where buildings block the sun and fluorescent lights light up the night. In the desert, it is the stars in their myriads that shine brightly at night. There one stands alone in the presence of God, for there the still small voice of Elijah can be heard. I should say the still small voice that Elijah heard can be heard, only not with the ears, with the heart. For in the desert, as it was for Hosea, God speaks to the soul, heart to heart. This desert tradition, so strongly portrayed in Scripture, is kept alive in monasteries. The first monastery was founded in a desert in Egypt by St. Anthony in 286 AD. And monks have followed his example for 1,735 years since. Like John the Baptist, they remind us from time to time to step back from the day-to-day and renew ourselves in solitude of heart with God, where we can hear God's voice and draw close to his heart. This is not to say that we must all retreat to the desert like the monks, but it is to say that we would be wise to learn from them how to find the desert in our own lives, these places where we can listen to God, where we encounter him, where we give ourselves to him in the kind of intense relationship of love that is our vocation, the covenant we are called to. The second thing I learned is that the Holy Trinity comes to dwell in our hearts through the words of Scripture. Most of you probably know this, but the words of Scripture are not ordinary words. They carry and transmit the presence and the life of the Trinity. It's not just I who say it. Jesus himself said it. If someone loves me, they will keep my word. This is John chapter 14. If someone loves me, they will keep my word, and my Father will love him and we will come to him and make our dwelling place in him. 
So if the Father and the Son come, as Jesus says, so too comes the Spirit. This is true. It's not mere poetry. I have tasted it myself, and I have seen people transformed by this truth. Believing this, the monks have developed a wise, centuries-old practice for how to welcome the divine word. It's known as Lexio Divina, which is Latin for sacred reading. It's an exquisite practice with rich fruits for the patient soul. I learned it in the monastery, and I have learned to be faithful to it as a layperson. So what does one discover by practicing Lexio Divina? The key lesson is that Scripture opens up a path for the soul to gaze on the glory of God as it shines on the face of Jesus Christ. This is what Paul was talking about when he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, And we who gaze upon the glory of the Lord with unveiled faces are being transformed from glory to glory into his image through the Holy Spirit. I also learned that we can use the principles of Lexio Divina to better grasp how God reveals himself in our lives. Because then, as now, Jesus reveals himself through our experience, illuminated by divine revelation. The Holy Spirit continues to reveal himself and to teach us all things. The practice of Lexio Divina gives us a light with which to interpret God's presence among us. That's the second thing. Third, I learned that Jesus communicates himself to our souls through the Eucharist. This is a tenet of the Catholic faith. It's nothing new. It has been a core teaching of the Catholic Church since the days Paul wrote his first epistle. But in the monastery, with my forehead to the floor the way monks fall prostrate before the presence of God, I touch this mystery as a living reality, a truth deep in the heart of God and in the human soul, a truth of heaven, a truth of earth. And in the years since, I have learned that this truth holds outside the monastery. In the Eucharist, Jesus himself stands in the midst of his church, just as he once came and stood among his disciples in the upper room. He draws us into deep communion of heart with him, just as he did with the disciples of Emmaus. When we take in the Eucharist, we take in Jesus. But in a deeper sense, he takes us in, as St. Augustine wrote. We become immersed in the immense heart of God, like fish in the sea. The sea is in us, but we are also in the sea. He is in us, but we are in Christ, taken up in him. Fourth, I learned of the Psalms of the prayer book of the poor. They are the cry of the Christian, words Jesus himself took upon his lips, into his prayer, even on the cross. And as such, they give expression to the deepest pulse of the human heart before God. The Psalms are a means, by the Psalms I mean those 150 prayers uh, that are uh, summed up in, in um, it's a particular uh, book in the Bible. The Psalms are a means by which we can sanctify time and speak heart to heart with God. There's a quote by St. Athanasius that I love. Athanasius was a 4th century bishop of Alexandria, defender of Christ as homoousios with the Father, one in substance with the Father, friend of monasticism, and the, he was the first to identify the 27 books we now consider the New Testament. Athanasius once said that in the Psalms, this is so beautiful, we find the insights of all the other books of the Bible, gathered together as though in a collection of flowers arranged in such a way that they can be sung, and the singing produces a still greater fruit. It's the most beautiful description I've ever heard of the Psalms. In the monastery where I lived, 
We prayed all 150 psalms every week, broken up into little intervals, as part of our regular prayer. I don't follow that full rhythm anymore, but I do pray multiple psalms every day. In doing so, I have learned that the secret to prayer is frequency of prayer, an ongoing conversation with God. Punctuating the the sections of the day with the psalms is a beautiful way to do that. I have learned to love the psalms and to take them up as my own prayer and to sing them as often as possible. Because as Augustine said, to sing is to pray twice. That's the fourth thing. Fifth and finally, I learned from the monks that every person who has become a disciple of Jesus, every person, has the calling and the gifting to be a priest, which is to say, to make of their heart a new ark of the covenant by holding Jesus' presence there in his word and through the Eucharist, to stand in God's presence and serve him, and from the very midst of human life to praise God there and to bless in his name. These three insights are taken from Scripture, Deuteronomy chapter 10, 1 Peter chapter 2, and Revelation chapter 5. But the monks taught me to make them my own. They also happen to harmonize with the experience of many Christian churches and the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which states that Christ, high priest and unique mediator, has made of the church a kingdom, priests for our God and Father. The whole community of the faithful as such is priestly then. The faithful exercise their baptismal priesthood, or the common priesthood, as it says elsewhere, through their participation in Christ's mission as priest, prophet, and king. That's a section from the Catechism, the Catholic Catechism, uh, section 1546. So there you have it. Five takeaways from my time in the monastery. To recap, the primacy of the desert in the spiritual life. Lexio Divina as the path to communion with the Trinity. The real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist. That's third. Fourth, the Psalms as flowers of Scripture transformed into prayer. And finally, the universal call we all have as Christians to be priests. To be those who carry the presence of Jesus in their heart who stand in God's presence to serve him, and who bless in his name. As I said in the beginning, these five topics can be summed up in a single word. But before I summarize, there is one final gem I gathered from the monastery that I'd like to share. It's the way the monks understand Mary, the mother of Jesus. I don't know how you all feel about Mary. I know that when I first entered the monastery, I had mixed feelings. On the one hand, there was a strong devotion you could see in most Catholic communities. People talked a lot about Mary. People prayed fast rosaries to Mary. There were some unattractive statues to Mary in churches and schools. I was skeptical. I didn't feel a great devotion to Mary. It made no sense to my brain, and my Protestant friends felt Catholic devotion to Mary was out of place. But I knew some very faithful Catholics with a deep and reverent devotion to Mary, so I kept an open mind. What I quickly discovered is that Mary was seen as the mother of every monastery I ever visited. She was an anchoring presence. She inspired tenderness, devotion, fidelity to the Word, closeness to Jesus, intimacy with the Holy Spirit. This is not the place to go into a long discussion of this topic. I do that in the book. Here I just want to say one thing. A monk comes to know Mary as a living person a maternal presence in their spiritual life. It's not purely a rational thing. It's a relationship at the level of the heart. At a certain point, it becomes irrefutable, undeniable, like the love you have for your own mother. Think of it this way. 
In a monastery, like all the saints, Mary is discovered to be living. Just as we believe our loved ones, or many of us believe, our loved ones enter into eternal life with God in heaven after they die, so the saints leave this life to live with God in heaven. God is not the God of the dead, says Jesus, but of the living. That's Luke chapter 20, verse 38. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. But great saints don't just live in heaven. They intercede on earth, just as Moses and Elijah appeared with Jesus in his glory during the transfiguration. There's a veil between heaven and earth, and when God wills it, saints can pass through it. I have experienced it. So what I want to say is that for a monk, Mary is among the living. She is their mother, alive in the heavenly kingdom. They learn from her life as a Christian disciple, as it has been revealed through Scripture and through the reflection of the church. They discover through experience that Mary is the mother of the Christian life in all of us. And Jesus himself said this to John in, I think that's John, John's Gospel, chapter 19, where he says to John, Behold your mother at the cross. In, in fact, that was the last words he spoke. So the, the, uh, the, the monk discovers through experience that Mary is the mother of the Christian life in all of us, that she is the model of, the Christian, of Christian faith and of the response to faith in action and prayer. In short, it would be hard to overstate the reverence and role of Mary in the life of the monk. Her maternity and presence are tangible and real. They have also become real for me. That's the sixth thing I took away from my experience at the monastery. Still, all six topics can be summed up in a single word, friendship. The monastic path is, in essence, the path of friendship with God. That is the transcendent light of the desert tradition. That is what they discover, and that is what we can all learn from the path of the monk. I hope this book invites you to take your next step in the deepening of this friendship. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.